Steven Spielberg signs on to direct a DC film. Anna Diop addresses backlash from Titan's leaked set photos. And He-Man makes his way into the DC universe. All this and more on a brand new edition of the DC Comics News Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Episode 3 of the DC Comics News Podcast. I am Josh Rayner, the Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News, and I'm very happy to have you all here with me. We have a whole lot of news, so I'm just going to jump right into it. First off, fresh off the boat actor Randall Park is cast as Dr. Stephen Shin during reshoots for Aquaman. The character in the comics was a friend of Aquaman's fa- human father and helped a young Arthur Curry develop his powers, but would later grow obsessed with finding out where the lost city of Atlantis was located. Uh, I think this is really interesting news. Usually when you hear about uh, reshoots in films, particularly in recent DC films, it hasn't been a good thing. A lot of, you know, usually you get worried about the production being bad, but these reshoots are the, the, the normal ones that every big budget film has. They're par for the course. And hearing things like this, like James Wan bringing in a great actor like Randall Park to play this character, I really am interested to see where they're going with it. It seems like he's building upon Aquaman's backstory a little bit. And this could definitely be something that will lead into the sequel. Maybe Shin's obsession will grow throughout the film. We'll see that. And that'll lead into something more in the sequel. We also saw some set photos from Jason Momoa and Amber Heard showing the rarely uh, seen good side of these reshoots. Like I said, reshoots are usually something that people worry about when they hear that word. But from everything that we've been seeing from these Aquaman reshoots, everything seems good. Although you know, there hasn't been any production issues throughout the entirety of it. So I'm actually really excited for December to come when this movie comes out. I really I love James Wan, so I'm really hoping that this turns out to be great and could be a real turnaround for the DCEU where it stands right now. We also learned that Aquaman was getting a new release date in the UK and is now going to hit theaters on December 14th, one week before the US release date, which is December 21st. This is another really good sign that Warner Brothers has a lot of faith in this film, uh, that they like what they have seen. Usually, you don't get these types of release date pushes unless it's, it's something bad, and then you see it usually pushed back. We saw uh, a forward push with uh, Marvel's uh, Avengers Infinity War because Marvel obviously has confidence in that film, so they saw uh, fit to push it up. So I see Warner Brothers pushing this up, even if it is just in the UK. I see them pushing Aquaman forward a week as a very good sign that they like what they've seen and that they are confident in what James Wan has brought to the film. The film's summary reads, Aquaman finds himself caught between a surface world that ravages the sea and the underwater Atlanteans who are ready to revolt. Uh, Like I said, it's being directed by James Wan and stars Jason Momoa, Amber Heard, Nicole Kidman, Patrick Wilson, and Willem Dafoe. The villain in the film is going to be Ocean Master, so I think that's really cool. I know that they have also cast Black Manta, so... 
I'm interested to see how much Black Manta will be in it. Because from what I have heard, uh, Orm is the main villain and that he's being played by Patrick Wilson. So if Ocean Master is the main antagonist of the film, I'm curious as to where, like, how much uh, Black Manta will really be in it and if it'll be more, kind of more of a tease that will lead into the sequel, which I'd be okay with as long as the story is good. So, uh, like I said, Aquaman hits theaters in the U.S. on December 21st. So I'm definitely looking, looking forward to that one and I hope you guys are as well. Next up in movie news, uh, DC's The American Way, Those Above and Those Below is heading to the big screen. The American Way, Those Above and Those Below is based on John Ridley's recent six-issue sequel series to the 2007 series The American Way. Uh, The film will be set in 1972, ten years after the events that take place in the original series. An Oscar-winning writer of 12 Years of Slave and writer of the comic book itself, John Ridley, will write and direct this uh, Blumhouse Films production. Uh, The comic series actually just recently wrapped up with a trade paperback version set to release this coming week on April 24th. So if you haven't checked out The American Way or The American Way, Those Above and Those Below, please do so. It's it's a great series. You know, it's very politically charged. I really think that people need to, more people need to check out the series. The original dealt with the creation of a team of 60 superheroes called the Civil Defense Corps, uh, each of them having uh, special powers, but they also had a, a specific ethnic background designed to uh, make segments of the American population feel safe and represented. And the sequel series uh, is set, like I said, 10 years after the Civil Defense Corps was torn apart by racism, infighting, and murder, and exposed as a propaganda sham. The surviving members are heading in different directions, as the synopsis reads. Uh, Missy Devereaux, a.k.a. Ole Miss, is transitioning from the First Lady of Mississippi into a candidate for governor and defender of a vanishing and hateful way of life. Amber Eaton, formerly known as Amber Waves, is a domestic terrorist using her powers to infiltrate and destroy the country's centers of power. Fisher has remained a crime fighter, conflicted with being a propaganda prop to sustain a system rigged against the black population of America. He tries to become a champion of the disenfranchised people of inner-city Baltimore, who are wary he is a tool of the heavy-handed police force. Though the film will be set in 1972, there are plenty of issues that ring relevant today and that give this a chance to be more than your typical spandex saga. For Like I said, for those of you who have not read it, do, do yourself a favor and check out these series. They are fantastic. And I am super excited that Ridley is taking his material and, and turning it into a film. He's a fantastic screenwriter. Uh, he, like I said, he's Oscar winning. He did 12 Years a Slave, which was a masterpiece of a film. And I really am excited to see him dive into this material for the big screen. Uh, the project is being fast-tracked by Blumhouse, so keep an eye out for it. There has, there's no release date or anything like that yet for it. But I think this will be one that people will be talking about for a while. Next up, the Harley Quinn and Birds of Prey movie is looking to sign Kathy Yan to direct. If she does sign on, she'll be the first Asian woman to direct a major studio superhero film, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and As of right now, Harley Quinn is the only one confirmed for the film, 
with Margot Robbie set to reprise her role as Harley Quinn from Suicide Squad. However, Christina Hodson uh, did write the script for this film and is also writing the script to Batgirl. So hopefully this means that there will be some connectivity throughout and that she will write the same Batgirl within both. So that way we'll have a nice lead through for it. It'll kind of serve similar to the way that Captain America Civil War did for both Spider-Man and Black Panther, where it introduced this character, these two characters and allowed them to move into their, other, their own films without an issue. So hopefully introducing characters like Batgirl here will make an easier transition into her solo film. And hopefully we'll see, you know, some other great characters like like Huntress and Black Canary if they are actually doing this as a Birds of Prey movie. And maybe from, you know, the rumors that had been floating around for quite a while, it, they were originally talking about doing a Gotham City Sirens movie, which would have been Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, and Catwoman. And then there were rumors that it, rumors that it was the Gotham City Sirens going up against Birds of Prey, and then the rumors were that it was just becoming a Birds of Prey movie, and now it sounds like it is a Harley Quinn Birds of Prey movie, which still might lead credence to the Gotham City Sirens and Birds of Prey storyline that had been talked about. And if that's the case, I'm actually even more excited for it because I... Would love to see this very female-centric film, you know, with both villains and heroes of that gender going back and forth with one another. And you have a woman directing it and a woman writing it. I think it'll be just full of female empowerment, which I think is great and is something that is desperately needed in the comic book realm right now. So I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, production is slated to begin at the end of the year alongside Suicide, Suicide Squad 2, which you'll see Harley Quinn in once again. So hopefully Suicide Squad 2 will be f- much better than the first one, and hopefully this film will really just push forward the this universe that we've been really hoping for but didn't quite get to the level that most of us wanted. And speaking of directors coming into the DC Universe, legendary directing icon Steven Spielberg has been signed on to direct a Black Hawk film. Based on the classic comic book property, the project will mark the filmmaker's first feature centered on characters from the DC Universe. Spielberg most recently directed Ready Player One for Warner Brothers, which has so far grossed nearly half a billion dollars worldwide, following its release late last month. Toby Emmerich, chairman of Warner Brothers Pictures Group, went on to say, We are so proud to be the studio behind Steven Spielberg's latest hit and are thrilled to be working with him again on this new action adventure. We can't wait to see what new ground he will break in introducing Black Hawk to movie audiences everywhere. Uh, Black Hawk was first introduced in 1941 by Quality Comics before the property was acquired by DC in 1957. In the comics, Black Hawk was the leader of the Black Hawk Squadron, an elite group of pilots that fought in World War II. Now, this isn't your typical, you know, superhero DC kind of property. It's it's a war book, which I think is perfect for someone like Steven Spielberg. For those of you who know his work, you know that he can do pretty much any genre. He's done them all. But doing a war film 
is something that you know he can pull off if you've ever seen Saving Private Ryan. And I think taking a talent like Steven Spielberg and giving him an unknown property like Black Hawk, making it a straight-up war film, is the best bet you're going to get for this. And I think he's going to knock it out of the park and really just shine a light on a character that you don't normally hear much about. Black Hawk isn't, isn't you know, a mainstay in even in most comic book fans' worlds. So to bring something like Black Hawk into the public, I think is a great thing for DC to do. And get and like I said, getting someone like Steven Spielberg to do it, that that's just like icing on the cake. They are definitely doing this the right way. It looks like they're doing some interconnected stuff while also doing some completely separate stuff. And I think that is exactly where they need to go. This That is how they need to differentiate themselves from the Marvel Universe and make their films really stand out. Because not everything needs to be connected. You can have something like Blackhawk, be a standalone film, and then have things like the Birds of Prey movie and the Batgirl movie tie together. This is perfectly where DC needs to go, and I'm so happy to see them doing something like this. There's no release date or anything like that yet, and production has not begun yet. Uh, I will definitely keep you informed uh, as the news rolls in about this, as I'm sure more and more will come out. Alright, now it's time for some TV news. Up first, I'm going to talk about something that has been going around the internet quite a bit over the last week or so. And that is these leaked set photos that have surfaced from the set of the, all, the brand new series Titans that is set to debut on DC's upcoming streaming service. Some unofficial photos hit the web showing Starfire, Beast Boy, and Raven in not very good light, I'll say. Now, what a lot of people don't seem to understand when looking at these photos is that these are not official set photos. These aren't even photos during filming. These are the actors just standing around in between scenes with their coats on because it's like 15 degrees outside. And there's absolutely no CGI, no visual effects or anything like that. So people have been tearing them apart for nothing. They haven't actually seen what these characters are going to look like. And if they saw the previous photos of Robin and of Hawk and Dove, I don't understand why they're bashing it now. Those photos, at least to me and to many other fans out there, were great. They looked fantastic. And if people weren't out there taking set photos and just posting them online with no context, this kind of thing wouldn't happen. How about we just wait until WB releases official photos before we start acting like a-holes and being racist to people because that's what this story is actually all about. Actor Anna Diop, Diop, who plays Starfire, put out a response on, I believe it was her Instagram, responding to some extremely vitriolic hate speech that came her way. And this has nothing to do with people saying, this is saying, oh, your character looks stupid. I don't like the outfit or the hair. No, this is different. This is for those people out there who decided to bash 
her character and her character alone because of the color of her skin. And for before you out there start saying, oh, that's not what's happening. It is what's happening because I have seen it plenty of times since these photos came out. I've seen it myself. People being just disgusting on the internet about her race and it is uncalled for. If you want to say that her wig looks stupid or that you know her dress makes her look like a hooker, whatever. That's one thing. But when you start bashing the character and the actress for the color of their skin, that is where the, I draw the line. And that needs to stop. So, like I said, Anna Diop put out a response. I'm going to read uh, her response from her Instagram account right now. It says, To the Titans fans, Yesterday a photo of me on the set leaked online. And it was unfortunate because fans have been waiting months for a photo of Starfire and a sloppy photo of me on a curb in 15 degree weather is what they got instead. For the sake of our incredible fans, I hated that this is the first picture people are seeing. It's out of context and it's a misrepresentation of the incredible character I get to play. And also a misrepresentation of the phenomenal production behind it all. With that said, the hate speech that followed was deplorable. And though I am highly unbothered, I do want to use this as an opportunity to say that tearing people down is not something that I tolerate. For myself or anyone else. Too often social media is abused by some who find refuge in the anonymity and detachment it provides. Misused as a tool to harass, abuse, and spew hatred at others, this is weak, sad, and a direct reflection of the abuser. Racist, derogatory, and or cruel comments have nothing to do with the person on the receiving end of the abuse, and because I know this, I'm unfazed. But for anyone out there who may not, I am here to remind you that whatever ugly and negative thing anyone ever chooses to say about you is always a reflection and revelation of themselves. It does not define you, and it certainly does not make you any less perfect than you are. Be you. Stay beautiful. Live breezy. As always, much love. Now, this really hit me because I I sit back and I see all these things on the internet all the time. It's, it's full of just hateful, hateful people who have nothing better to do with their lives than tear other people down. And it's disgusting. And I'm so glad that she put out this response. Because if anybody had been paying attention to things that have been going on with this show, you'd know that there's more to it than what these set photos show. Anna Diop herself put out a video of her getting scanned for visual effects, which means that what you've seen in those set photos are not what you're going to see when the show comes out or even when an official photo actually drops. So it's this act first and ask questions later attitude that really needs to stop when it comes to fandom. And it's not just DC, it's every single fandom out there, whether it's DC, Marvel, Star Wars, anything out there. You need to stop and just take a minute before you start putting out all this hate. Think about it for a second. Maybe there's a reason that something looks the way it does. Maybe think about the fact that you're looking at an unofficial leaked set photo before you go and just start hammering somebody for things beyond their control. I don't want to get too 
too far into you know down this road. I've said what I wanted to say, but I, for one, from the th- official photos that I have seen so far of this series, am very excited for what is coming from it. I'm very excited to see the official photos of Starfire, Beast Boy, and Raven, and I'm super excited for the show itself. And whenever they decide to announce the sh- when the streaming service launches, I know I'll be getting it. As we'll be getting Titans, we'll be getting Young Justice Season 3. You know, this is a great time to be a DC fan. But some people just need to take a step back and think before they speak. Like I said, the show will air exclusively on DC's upcoming digital streaming service, which has yet to be given a date. As soon as a date is announced for the streaming service, we will definitely let you know. Now some lighter news. AMC's Preacher has set a premiere date for the sh- for the upcoming third season. Uh, the new season has been filming for some time without much of an update, but now we finally got a date for the premiere, and some uh, photos were actually also released uh, from the series. So go online, check out. The, I think there was only three, but they, they look pretty cool. There was not a whole lot. It's not giving you away much, but you do get to see some stuff from the new season, which is nice. Uh, in Season 3, Jesse Custer's quest for God takes him back to the place he's been avoiding his whole life, home. Jesse, Tulip, and Cassie return to Angelville, the Louisiana plantation where Jesse was raised, and find old grudges and deadly obligations await them. With the help of his friends and a few enemies, Jesse will need to escape his past because the future of the world depends on it. Preacher Season 3 will officially premiere on Sunday, June 24th at 10 p.m. on AMC. So make sure you're checking that out. So this next story has some spoilers about Legends of Tomorrow's uh, season finale. So if you haven't watched Legends of Tomorrow's the season finale of Legends of Tomorrow, please skip forward a couple of minutes as I'm going to be talking about it. Otherwise, here we go. Legends of Tomorrow ended its third season last week, and during that season finale, Amaya ultimately decided to leave the Wave Rider and return to her village. Rip, meanwhile, sacrificed himself to buy the Legends some time to escape from Mollus. Executive producer Mark Guggenheim uh, told Entertainment Weekly on an interview on Sirius XM Radio, Yes, Maisie will absolutely be back. We just felt like we owed it to the character to complete this arc, complete this story loop that we got her in. Once we took her off her path in 1942, it was always incumbent upon us to return her to that path. That was something that hung over us as writers and hung over the character. I'm looking forward to a different storyline for Amaya next year. We'll reveal our plans for Maisie's character at Comic-Con this year. Uh, He also went on to address Rip Hunter. We love Arthur. We love having Arthur on the show, and I think Arthur enjoys being on the show. Because it's a time travel show, and because we never saw a body, anything is possible. I think Arthur is totally willing to come back and play with us if we have a cool idea. So for those of you who have seen the finale, you know... You know, how everything went down, like I said. And I know for me, I loved the dynamic between Amaya and Nate. And I was so hoping that it was going to be revealed that Nate was actually the father of her children. 
and that they could actually stay together. Maybe that'll still happen. I don't know, but it's something that both me and my wife were really, really rooting for, and we're really kind of bummed out about that they didn't do in the finale. And as far as Rip goes, he's been, you know, back and forth. He's been a good guy. He's been a bad guy. He's been here. He's been there. He's been not on the show. So seeing him kind of go in and out of the series, I'm I'm okay with that. And I think his sacrifice was, was a nice gesture and it, and it definitely helped. But I don't necessarily think he's needed, but he will definitely be welcome back, at least for me as an audience member, anytime he wants to show up. So if he does show up, I'll definitely be excited, but it's not something that, you know, I'm going to be crying about if he doesn't. Legends of Tomorrow will be back. It has been renewed for uh, another season, so come back next this coming fall for a new season of Legends of Tomorrow. And that brings us to our section on comic book news. A new color is being added to the Lantern Corps spectrum. That's right. In Justice League number 3, Scott Snyder and Jorge Jimenez will transform long-standing Green Lantern John Stewart into an ultraviolet lantern. You heard me right, an ultraviolet lantern. The issue's official description states, under the influence of the ultraviolet spectrum, John Stewart engages in some ultraviolence against his teammates Flash, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman. It's less clear about the ring's origin, though it's probably a pretty safe bet that it has something to do with the breach left in the source wall at the end of Dark Knight's Metal. Now, this is something that I'm really intrigued about because Green Lantern and the Green Lantern stories, those are my favorites. I loved Blackest Night and, and you know the introduction to this whole you know, large spectrum of, of lanterns and I, I used to read all of them you know all their the individual books that they had whether it was you know Sinestro Red Lanterns the, the short-lived Larflee series you know all the various Green Lantern series and this is something that I think will really be a nice fresh new take for for these series Jon Stewart is one of those characters who has a darkness within him we've seen that in the past and I think this new ultraviolet spectrum, as it says, it's going to bring out some ultraviolence. It's and if you there is one image that uh, DC released, and it does it looks like he's he's about to go crazy, and I'm I I kind of dig this, and I you know him fighting his former friends, I think this will make for some very very cool storytelling, and I'm very excited to see where goes how they you know what they what they're planning to actually do with this storyline if this ultraviolet spectrum will stick around long term it will become you know part of this main you know set of the you know the, the various cores in an interview Scott Snyder went on to say breaking the source wall means new sectors for the green lanterns new rules of physics for magic new cosmic wonders for characters like starfire who are exploratory in space it's a shattering of limitations that sounds awesome to me so i'll definitely be checking out uh, justice league number three when it hits stands next up tim seeley and freddie williams unite for injustice versus he-man and the masters of the universe that's right this summer the characters of dc's injustice series will be heading to eternia 
The six-issue miniseries will be written by Tim Seeley, who will team up with fan-favorite artist Freddie Williams. The synopsis for the book reads, Believing He-Man and the Masters of the Universe defeated, a robotic imposter has seized control of Eternia, but not for long. After freeing his kingdom from his strongman's rule, He-Man learns not everyone is pleased to see the pretender deposed. But Adam knows the value of freedom. When heroes from another dimension ask his aid in deposing a hero turned dictator, he agrees. Teaming up with Batman against the Superman of the Injustice Universe, He-Man and his new allies face dangerous and familiar enemies in a battle where no world is safe. Injustice vs. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe will hit comic shops and digital retailers on July 18th. Now this sounds fantastic. Taking a property like He-Man and merging it with this Injustice world, this is just nuts. Injustice has been crazy since its inception. And to see them cross dimension into the world of He-Man... This is going to be something I know I'm definitely going to be picking up. And it's definitely something I think all of you need to check out. It sounds fantastic. If you're a fan of either Injustice or He-Man or heck of both, go and check this out. Let me know what you think of this upcoming mashup. I mean, Injustice and He-Man. It's not something that you would think you would see. But it's definitely something that I never knew I wanted. But I do. So like I said, that comes out July 8th. Of 2018. And our last story in the world of comic books, DC is looking to set up a Murphyverse in the world of Sean Murphy's Batman White Knight. Murphy released uh, a tweet saying, DC informally calls it the, Mal- the Murphyverse. If I do a sequel and set up my own rules in White Knight, here are my promises to the reader. One. When someone dies, they stay dead. Period. Two. Every book comes out on time. Three. No narration balloons unless it's a voiceover and a flashback. Four. No excessive amounts of variance to burden comic shops. At most, there will be two. The main cover and the variant for the super passionate collector. Five. There will be at least one awesome vehicle in each book. And six, no complicated tie-ins to other series or events. White Knight will be easy to get into whether you read comics or not. Neither DC nor Murphy uh, have announced actual plans for a follow-up to White Knight. However, at C2E2, Murphy said he planned to announce something at October's New York Comic Con. So, I mean, it's, it's a ways away, but it's something to look out for when New York Comic Con comes up, as White Knight has been a fantastic series so far. And if Murphy wants to build a universe within that, that's not going to like tie into all these other books and stuff, it'd be just a contained universe, I think that's something that'll be kind of awesome to see. And it's something I'm definitely looking forward to if it happens. Batman White Knight number 8 hits shelves on May 9th. That's the final issue, so definitely go check that out. And if you haven't started reading White Knight, go pick up the first seven issues and give them a read. All right, next up is our review section. First, I wanted to kind of give a mention. I wrote a review recently 
about a new art book that was released by Insight Editions. It's called DC Comics Variant Covers, The Complete Visual History. I talked about it on a previous episode, but I wanted to to bring it up again because, like I said, I just wrote my full review, which is up on the site right now on uh, www.dccomicsnews.com. Definitely go check that out. This book is fantastic. It's huge. It's got some beautiful art. It's got some great uh, written history in it. And if you are a lover of comic book art, it's definitely a book you need to get. It comes out later this uh, coming week uh, on April 24th. So you can pre-order it now on both Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You'll get some discounted pricing that way. So go check out my review on the site. It's got the links to the pre-orders in there. And let me know, you know what you think, especially if you end up picking up the book. Let me know what you think because I loved it. I read every single page that's, that's in there, looked at every piece of art. It's so much beautiful stuff. I am a huge fan of comic book art. Anytime I go to a convention, Artist Alley is like one of the first places I go to. So this was a treat for me to be able to review. And for our main review today, DCN writer Matthew Lloyd gives us his thoughts on the brand new Action Comics 1000, the big milestone issue for Action Comics celebrating Superman's 80th year. This is a huge issue. Go out and get it. So without further ado, take it away, Matt. Hi. My name is Matthew Lloyd, one of the reviewers here at DC Comics News, and welcome to the review of the historic Action Comics number 1000. This issue features story and art by Brian Michael Bendis, Jim Lee, Jeff Johns, Richard Donner, Oliver Koipel, Paul Denny, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Tom King, Clay Mann, Brad Meltzer, John Cassidy, Luis Simonson, Jerry Ordway, Scott Snyder, Tim Sale, Peter Tomasi, Patrick Gleason, Marv Wolfman, Kurt Swan, and Dan Jurgens. Let's start at the beginning. The trunks are back. If you love them, you're going to be really happy. If not, you're just going to have to get used to them. This issue does two things really well. It features stories that honor not only the content of Superman's character, like Neil Adams and Paul Levitt's The Game, that shows Superman trying to rehab Luthor again, and Jeff Johns and Richard Donner and Oliver Koipel's The Car, which tells an untold encounter between Superman and Butch, the driver of the car on the cover to Action Comics number 1. But it also has stories like Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason's Never Ending Battle, in which Superman is thrown through hypertime by Vandal Savage and experiences all the characters' different historical eras, going way back to his first appearance in 1938 through his death and return up to the present. The issue opens with a Dan Jurgens written and drawn tale of Superman Day in Metropolis. Clark's running late and Lois is doing her best to assure John that Daddy won't be late. Of course, Superman is in space diverting an invasion by the Cuns. Clark makes it in time for the festivities where he is honored in testimonials by people he saved. The story ends on a bit of a twist as Lois has played her hand too broadly. She's been on the phone with Batman the whole time, and Superman realizes that the Cuns are still out there. Turns out the Justice League and most of the other heroes in the DC Universe have banded together to stop the Cuns in order to give Superman his moment of recognition. It's quite clever as Wonder Woman announces they are all fans too, and without him, they wouldn't be here either. An obvious but welcome metatextual thank you. Superman was the first. He started it all. The issue closes with Brian Michael Bendis' first Superman story that sets up his forthcoming run. 
Drawn by Jim Lee, it's little more than a protracted battle between Superman and a new alien to the Superman mythos. This alien claims he thought he'd wiped out the Kryptonian plague already. There is some clever and cute banter between the two women who help an unconscious Superman midway through the story, but the setup is clearly teasing Bendis' run in which he will make some sort of alteration to the history of Krypton's destruction. Highlights of this issue are Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's art in the story written by Paul Denny is just beautiful, classic-looking stuff. And it's always nice to see Kurt Swan's Superman grace the page. And it's fitting for the artist most associated with the character, after his co-creator, Joe Schuster, to make it into this book. The car, as previously mentioned, is a real treat. Who even thought that Butch could have a bigger story than what was shown in action number one? Superman's character really shines through as he sees Butch as a person and tries to help him be a better man. Every page in Never-Ending Battle are pinup worthy as they illustrate Superman throughout his 80-year publishing history. Each page masterfully captures the spirit and look of the time in which it is set. Jurgen's lead story does a great job of honoring the character's importance to the history of comic books and the DC Universe while utilizing the married Lois and Clark dynamic effectively. And there are no real negatives here as every story celebrates Superman history through the years in some way. Action Comics number 1000 is a fun and at times emotional celebration of Superman's 80 years in the title. Fans of the character and of comics in general will enjoy this loving tribute to the character who started the superhero craze in comics. It's going to be hard to pick which cover variant to get. Alright, thanks again Matt for that review of Action Comics number 1000. This is so, this is an issue that I am so excited about. I'm so happy that they went back to this legacy numbering and were able to hit this milestone. So bravo to DC. Congrats to Siegel and Schuster. And happy 80th anniversary to the Man of Steel himself, Superman. So thank you uh, everybody for joining me on episode 3 of the DC Comics News Podcast. It's you know been great doing this podcast. I love talking about DC. And if anybody out there wants to you know send me any questions, comments, anything like that, please feel free email me at Joshua J O S H U A at dccomicsnews.com. You know if I get a few you know good questions, I'll definitely read them out on air. I think that would be you know something real fun to do. So definitely do that. Also, make sure to check us out on all the social media platforms, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, all at DC Comics News. And always remember, everybody, read more comics.